We read in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning upstairs. By the way, you are welcome in the library every Sunday morning at 8.45 we pray. And uh, a lot of great books up there too if you need some study time, reading time, quiet time. Uh, We read Hebrews chapter 10 this morning before we prayed. And it's just a reminder as we had communion just now, Jesus sacrifices once for all. Once for all, everybody. And remember, when the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, the sacrificial system was over. The perfect sacrifice was offered in Jesus Christ. And now we don't need a priest to offer sacrifices. We don't need a mediator. We can go right into the presence of God. When that veil was torn, praise you, Jesus, by his blood, the perfect sacrifice. He, read Hebrews 10 sometime. It's a great, great chapter. Once for all. So we are in chapter 19 of Matthew today, and uh, boy, I want to ask you guys to pray for me. I do a weekly article and video for uh, Freedom Project. I'm a weekly contributor to Freedom Project Media, and the audience is mostly conservative, maybe nominally Christian, um, (laughs) probably more Republican and conservative um, uh, than Bible-believing Christian, but there's a lot of Christians, American Christianity, you know, professing Christians, which is good, uh, but I'm praying about what we're going to study this morning and about doing, because I've got like five or six minutes in the, in the video to condense an article I write every week, and I really, I'm praying for just this confirmation, I've, probably I'm going to do it, on the prosperity gospel, the heresy of the prosperity gospel, and it's such a seduction for American Christians to fall for these lies that are being sold. And I don't know, people just can't make that connection that there's these rich televangelists and these rich preachers, and they're, they have mansions, $10 million mansions, and they've got uh, one author, I won't say his name, for his recent, recent book, he was going to write. He had a $13 million advance to write this book. This is a pastor, a preacher, and you probably know who I'm talking about, but a lot of Christians in America are confused about this, and they think that's Christianity. Well, if a Christianity revolves around you and what God can do for you, then you just kind of want a genie in a, in a lamp. You don't want a God that you are going to submit yourself to and surrender to If you never hear repentance, holiness, sanctification, sacrifice, deny yourself and your flesh, that might not be the the true gospel. So pray for me. I think I'm going to do that, but but the challenge is putting that together and condensing that in this article and video. Today, uh, Matthew 19, we're going to talk about the rich young ruler. Jesus counsels a young man, and the, the title today is, How Do Good People Enter the Kingdom of Heaven? We could title it, How Do People Enter the Kingdom of Heaven? But the reason we have good in there is, you know, 99 out of 100 people in this country think they're good. Even people who don't believe in God or don't believe in Jesus, aren't Christians, they, I am a good person. Well, let's go through the list of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever broken any of these, right? But they still think they're good people. 
So there's an issue there with the heart. So let's read, um, I'm going to go back and forth from the New American Standard to the New King James, but I know most of you, I think, are in the New King James, so I'm going to read it from the New King James. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. Now behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life, or I may inherit eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Well, which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Father in heaven, would you please open up our hearts to your word this morning and make your word come alive to us and give us understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit. Teach us, Lord, what you want us to get today. And uh, we thank you that your word is alive. We praise, pray that you would speak to us and we commit this time to you, that you'd be glorified and exalted, and that you'd give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me read this quote. <laughs> Up in the library, <laughs> I'm promoting the library. Um, I just went over after our prayer time and saw this book, Matthew Commentary. It's by H.A. Ironside. I just want to read this quote. In order to understand this incident correctly that we just read, we need to distinguish carefully between salvation and discipleship. God's salvation is absolutely free. It is offered to men on the principle of pure, unmerited grace. But discipleship literally costs all that one has, the loss of all things. No one can be a true follower of Christ who does not take up his cross, and that which speaks of death to the flesh, and follow the Lord Jesus. Um, very challenging uh, section of scripture today for those of us in America. And you know what I mean by that, because we have a tendency to do things a little bit differently in the church in America, and um, what a friend of mine likes 
say often is American Christianity is most often not biblical Christianity. And you guys know what, what I mean by that and what he means by that. But the, the question, there could be no better question that this young man asked Jesus about how to get to heaven. But the way he asked it is interesting. A paraphrase might be, what must I do to be saved? Um, good question. What good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? The question demonstrates what a lot of us used to think, or maybe some of us still do, what the, the public still thinks, that all people by nature uh, had an orientation towards earning eternal life. Uh, this young man wanted to know what good work or noble deed that he could do to inherit life. You know, we want to achieve. We want to strive. We want to work. We want to get but what does the Bible teach? It's, it's a free gift. Jesus paid the price once and for all. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. What does that mean? What was finished? What do we have to do now? Believe. Accept the sacrifice. Trust in Jesus with all your heart. Now, the world religions and a lot of people in our society want to do, 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 do. Maybe it's because they feel like they don't measure up, they feel guilt or whatever, they want to work their way. What does Christianity teach? One word, done. Right? It is finished. Done. Now, we're talking about salvation here. We're not talking yet about discipleship and sanctification because that takes discipline. That takes the work. So... All three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that this young man, or this man was rich, wealthy. Matthew says he was young, um, and Luke tells us he was a ruler. So think about a person today, a young person, I don't want to pick on millennials. <laughs> think about a young person growing up in our society, our rich society in America, where everything's conveniences and everything else is, it's just a pretty easy life compared to many, many, many countries outside of America. Um, think about a person who has wealth and, and that person, that young person typically wouldn't think that much about spiritual things, wouldn't think that much about the future, let alone how they can inherit eternal life but at least give this young man credit, he had great riches yes he was young but he still was thinking about spiritual things, he still was thinking about inheriting eternal life so we got to give him credit where credit is due here <clears throat> so this young man seemed to sincerely seek the kingdom of heaven. But as we know from the story, he fell miserably short. And one principle that we can get from this beginning part of uh, the scriptures here, or, or these verses in Matthew 19, um, seek and you will find. That's a scripture that Luke talks about that. I think it's mentioned in a couple of gospels. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. The problem is, if you sincerely seek the truth, if you are sincerely seeking, and you will find, God says, when you search for me with all your heart, God says, you will find me. And then when you find him, when you find truth, the problem is accepting that truth. Because for most people, I would say, it's easier to, uh, that's a hard thing to give up. That's a hard life to live. I'm going to just go back to what I know. I'm going to go back to what is comfortable. And how many of you understand that I don't think the word comfortable, as far as a Christian life, that context cannot be found in Scripture. 
in America, we don't have people getting their heads chopped off and churches burned down and demolished and people chased out of their villages. Like all around the world, the persecution of Christians is at record levels, and it's always been. It's the Christian. Uh, yeah, there are other religions, are other people that are, are um, discriminated against or persecuted, but Christianity is, is the big one. Um, so the problem, when people find inconvenient truths, they often go back to what's more comfortable. Now, this young man submitted himself to Jesus, recognized his authority, called him teacher, and Christ, it's interesting, his reaction to him, treated him tenderly. So also it was not unusual in that time for Jews to address their teachers with the title good. Good teacher, good master. Um, he intended to honor Jesus as a good man. Jesus wanted him to acknowledge the fact that all but God are sinners, and Jesus was a good God. So the question, would you consider yourself a good person? We're going to define good here from what Jesus responded. It's likely that uh, most people would say, yeah, I'm a good person. But this begs one question, can someone be good without believing in Jesus, or can someone be good without having a knowledge of God? Um, this is not to ask if you can do good things. Being good and doing good are two different things, right? An atheist can do good. An atheist can do good things. An atheist can do things for charity or whatever. So it's interesting here what we're getting at. So Jesus' response, why do you call me good? Uh, in this, understand first, Jesus did not deny his goodness. He was asking the man a question to get him to process what he was just asking, what he really wanted, and what he was thinking. So... Um, basically, do you understand what you're saying when you call me good? It's like Jesus said, you come to me asking about what good thing you can do to inherit eternal life, but what do you really know about goodness? And Jesus could probably say that to any of us, to any of his disciples, to even the Jewish leaders at that time, who many of them were hypocrites. He could say, what do you really know about goodness? Spurgeon put it this way. He said, the argument is clear. Either Jesus was good or the young man ought not to have called him good. But since there is none good but God, Jesus, who is good, must be God in that definition of goodness. So Christ is trying to show this young man his error. The young man desired to know how he might get eternal life. Jesus says that he might enter life by faith, obedience, and sacrifice. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And our part of the journey must include sanctification, separating ourselves from the world, discipline in our spiritual lives, and we'll get to that a little bit in a minute. Um, but also, Jesus, why did he bring up the commandments that he did? Keeping some of these commandments, yeah, that's the law, right? So he mentioned keeping the commandments, it's law, but not the gospel. There's a difference in keeping the law, but Jesus was specifically directing his response to this young man because he knew his heart. He knew what the young man was dealing with, his, the issues that he had. So verse, oh, first of all, 1 John 3.23 says this, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. 1 John 3.23. Now, verses 18 to 20 Jesus tests him by the aspects of the Mosaic law that deal with man's relationship with others. Notice he didn't start with the first commandment. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no gods above him. Uh, he didn't start with the commandment one or two. Uh, the Lord lists five of the six commandments known as the second table, first table, second table of the Ten Commandments that deals with relationships with people. And the guy's response, how gutsy. This guy says, all these I have kept from my youth. <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, we, we don't... From the text, we can understand that the guy was sincere. He really thought, well, all these I have kept. We hear that and go, wow, because we know we miss it. We've, we've missed out on keeping those commandments. All these I have. So he claims to fulfill all God's commands regarding how we must treat other people, but that's not enough. We have to do right by God. And the young man's response appears to be prideful. And what it reveals is an overconfidence in his own merit. Um, Mark 10.21, though, it's interesting that this little addition says, because it talks about this same young man, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's what Jesus' response. He knew what this man was struggling with, but Jesus loved him. He wanted to help him work through this here. He loved him, had compassion on him. He this young man was so misguided to think that he could really justify himself before God. And we've been there, probably, almost probably everybody, every one of us have tried to justify ourselves before God, but now we know better. So the young man says, what do I still lack? This shows us that he had not perfectly kept the law because he still sensed that he lacked something or he wouldn't have approached Jesus to ask what more can I do? He felt there, there was something missing. So he knew, and maybe in the back of his mind, he fell short, but we would soon find out that he loved the world. 1 John 2.15, if you're taking notes, the one I shared a, a minute ago, 1 John 3.23, 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow is right. If we love the world and the things in this world, the love of the Father is not in us. That's, that's a challenge for us who live in America, isn't it? Verses uh, 21 and 22 now. Here's an interesting point we want to make about Jesus, part of Jesus' response. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor. Jesus was not setting forth terms for salvation here. He was revealing the young man's heart. We often make the mistake of thinking that applies to everyone. That's taken out of context. If someone says, well, if you don't sell all your possessions and give to the poor, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. No, context and a personal application to what this young man was going through. Um, he addressed this one man in this instance whose riches were clearly an obstacle to his salvation and his discipleship. There are lots of rich people that do much good in this world by Christians continuing to make money and doing great things, spreading the gospel, funding nonprofits. They're doing a lot of good things to advance the kingdom of God because riches don't have a hold on them. They are very generous. They are wealthy, but they're very generous. But that's not the norm. And that's what we're going to get to to this next response of Jesus where the disciples are flabbergasted. Okay, that's not the word the scripture uses, but just sounded good. Um, follow me. 
This is an invitation that Jesus gave this young man. How many times do we hear him? Other than the first original disciples when he called them, we don't hear this in Scripture very much, do we? So Jesus was sincerely offering this man an invitation. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and come, follow me. The call, well, this young man, to this young man, we found money is his God. He was struggling with idolatry. And maybe that's interesting that Jesus didn't mention the first couple commandments of having no other gods before him because he knew that this young man was struggling with idolatry and his wealth, his money was his God. So the call to forsake everything and follow Jesus is a call to inclusion, to seek God first and put him first in all things. But the man had worldly wealth and just couldn't let it go, even for something far greater. He could not let it go. Here's the principle here. God may challenge and require an individual to give something up for the sake of his kingdom, and for someone else, he might not require that person to give that up. Does that make sense? Because one person might struggle with it, hanging on to it. Another person might not have, have that issue and have to deal with that. So that's why God deals with us. as a, He knows our individual struggles and what we need. So we can't compare ourselves to someone else. Well, he went and did this. You don't have to follow that. Now, unless God makes that clear to you that you do. Um, but this word in the New American Standard, this man went away grieving. And I just wonder if we were there, Scripture doesn't say this, I wonder if he started tearing up and crying. That's quite a description. This man went away grieving. In the New King James, it says he went away sorrowful, for he had great riches. So upon leaving Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, upon walking away, he is now miserable, but he still has all his worldly wealth. He still has all his possessions, but he walks away in grief, sorrowful. So here's another warning to us about putting worldly goods in the place of the supreme God and something that you can take down. To embrace and follow Christ, we must hold all other things loosely. To embrace and follow Christ, we must hold the world's things loosely. There's good news, and, and Jesus has to preface this with assuredly. Now, in the, in, I believe the New American, or the New American Standard and NIV says, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Understand, when God says, I tell you the truth, either something is going to be very, very hard to believe, or it's going to be an amazing revelation and, and, and quite a different way of thinking when Jesus says, assuredly, or when he prefaces something with, I tell you the truth, because God never lies. Jesus never lied. And the disciples knew that. So to hear Jesus, when he wants to make a point, and he does it, I think, two or three times here, he says, um, now guys, let's, it's, it's a, I'll paraphrase, sit down. I'm telling you the truth. And then he says what he's going to say. Well, what does he say? He responds twice. Was Jesus teaching that riches are an obstacle to the kingdom? Yes. For some, yes. In America today, though, a lot of us might be considered rich to most of the world. So we're not talking about levels of riches here. We're talking about a matter of the heart. You might have a hard time hanging on to $1,000 and want to keep that where someone has an issue with 100000 You know what I mean? 
So it's not the amount that we're talking about. It's the fact that you're hanging on to something. It's a heart issue. So why is wealth such a problem when it comes to eternal things? Because it tends to give us a false sense of security and it tends to make us satisfied and comfortable here in this life instead of longing for the age to come and looking at eternal things. Wealth is not bad. It can be bad. It's up to you. But it's not in and of itself. It's not bad. So before we get to Jesus' amazing response here, Randy Alcorn said this, He who lays up treasures on earth spends his life backing away from his treasures. To him, death is loss. He who lays up treasures in heaven looks forward to eternity. He's moving daily toward his treasures. To him, death is gain. So, do our banking in heaven. And the question we need to ask ourselves, in what does our security rest? Challenging question for us to think about at times in our lives. A house, savings, retirement, our job, um, investments, these will all pass away. Not that we shouldn't have these things, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's that perspective. One problem with riches is they, they encourage a, a false independence. Some of the wealthiest people, even believers, think in the back of their minds they have less need of God. So Revelation 3.17, when I read this portion and talked about this independence that we can, re, we, we can have with a with wealth or with worldly goods, we can develop this sense of false security, I think. Jesus actually rebuked a church in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea. They, they were, the Laodicea was along a very popular trade route, very wealthy and prosperous, and there was a church there. Not anymore, but there was a church there. And here's one of the things that Jesus said when he rebuked them for being lukewarm. He said in Revelation 3.17, Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus was talking to Christians here. Not the world. Wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked? So we understand the message he's trying to get across. No wonder he said, I tell you the truth. Um, so how much does this independence and security sound like what we deal with here in America, and maybe even it's seeped into American Christianity, hmm, uh, the, the poison of the prosperity gospel is just one of many false teachings uh, leading us to expect or even demand God bless us. Not only do we demand God give us what we want, but the way we want it and when we want it. How dare us? But this is what's being preached. I've heard it. You, maybe you, you've used to be in one of those churches. We can see it on TV. We can definitely hear videos online. Uh, the, it is being preached. The sad thing is, guys, and you need to pray for missionaries to be true missionaries. By the way, I have always believed for decades, I've always believed that we need missionaries to come to America, the decadent West, and to evangelize us. We need missionaries to come to us. We need to repent 
Our country cannot repent or have revival until the church has repentance and revival. Do you understand? So we're sending missionaries to these other countries. Too many, not all missions organizations, but too many are going with either a slant or a full-on prosperity gospel, and they're going to these poor areas in Africa, and I've heard it from, I don't know if you uh, listen to to Stand Up for the Truth, Elijah Abraham teaches pastors and and goes over and and ministers. He's a missionary and evangelist and a pastor teacher. So he teaches pastors. He goes over to some of these countries in the Middle East or in Africa, and he found out that many of them have been sold this prosperity gospel and these are some of the poorest areas he's going to. And the pastor is dressed like these, a gold watch and the, because he thinks that's Christianity because of something that has been siphoned in over there from America. That's not Christianity. We're sending our missionaries over and we're having them do the worship in the church service like we do it, not the prosperity gospel is part of that. So please be praying for missionaries that have a sincere heart that want to go share the gospel with these other countries and, the, and these peoples. Please be praying for missionaries to be scripture-based. So that was, that was free. That was aside from the lesson here. <laughs> Just something that God put on my heart. Um, <laughs> that was worth the gas money, I hope. Um, verse 25. Um, when Jesus said, first of all, verse... Uh, He said, Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples heard it. They were greatly astonished. Words are specific in the gospel. When words are used, it's not just they they were surprised by it. They didn't expect it. No, they were astonished. And the, um, the New King James says, exceedingly amazed when Jesus said that. And Jesus said, thankfully, after they said, well, who then can be saved? This sounds like it's going to be pretty hard for anybody to enter the kingdom of God. Thankfully, Jesus said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. A committed disciple of Christ can do good things with money. Um, consider the examples from Scripture. We have like Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, who there's a, there's a prophecy in Isaiah, I believe, that says Jesus will be buried um, with, not with a rich man. It, it uses rich man in this prophecy, but what did that mean? For Jesus wasn't rich. Joseph of Arimathea provided the tomb, and he was a wealthy man. So that fulfilled a prophecy from Isaiah but there are rich men who do. Barnabas was one. Um, there are people who are still able to put God above their wealth and not hang on tightly to their wealth and their treasures. Um, it's important to see what Jesus did not say here. Okay, we heard what he said. We've, we've read the scriptures. We've been talking about it. Now let's look at two things that Jesus did not say. He did not say that all poor people make it to heaven. Okay? We, we know that. All poor, poor people did not or do not make it to heaven. He, he also did not say, no one who is wealthy can enter the kingdom of heaven. He did not say those two things. Because that, that would exclude Abraham, who had lands and riches and herds and you know, all, all, livestock. 
Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, David, you can go on through the list of people in the Bible that were wealthy uh, from the world's perspective, but they still would make it to the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 27 through 30, Peter's blunt question. Let's talk about this. He's thinking about, well, wait a minute. What shall we have? So he's thinking about reward. So verse 27, Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? This was sincere. What do we get from following you? Um, note that, interesting here, it, it sounds interesting, and you don't know how it, how we, we didn't hear what, how it was said. We only have the words, the text in, in Scripture. But Jesus did not rebuke Peter's claim either way. He didn't rebuke his claim of leaving everything behind, and he didn't rebuke Peter's uh, claim for his expectation of reward. Very important. Jesus didn't say, oh, wait a minute, you didn't leave everything or he didn't say, well, don't have those expectations. Interesting what's not in there, right? Jesus didn't rebuke him for that. Um, so some disciples did leave all. Most of them did. They had wives. A couple, several of them at least had wives. Uh, maybe some of them had, had children to provide for. What would be their reward? Um, so the, aside from the obvious, in, pres in God's presence in eternity forever, <laughs> wow. Do you need anything else? Worshiping the King of Kings. Um, glorified, resurrected bodies. These are just temples, tents, temporary dwellings for our, for our real souls, our real selves. But they're going to be glorified and renewed in heaven. That's, that's good too. But for the disciples here, there's something very interesting for the disciples. Other than that, and that's a lot, that's enough, right? An administration in the millennial kingdom. It says the 12 disciples will be the judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. Very interesting. So they will have some sort of administration, administrative position, Jesus said here in part of his response. So the New Testament principle here is we are blessed when we suffer for Christ, and we are blessed to enter his glory as well. Um, after all, what, have any, what do any of us have to lose for Jesus compared to what we gain with him? If you think about it in that way, we know this life is but a vapor. Let's get that perspective, guys, that eternal perspective. And it takes discipline in the, in the morning, in the word, in prayer, hanging around the right people, going to the right church to cultivate that eternal perspective. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Hold your finger in Matthew 19. And also, it's interesting that Jesus said, whatever has been given up for him will be returned a hundred times over in addition to everlasting life. That's kind of beyond our imagination, but the return is not always riches in this life. Understand that when he says, um, there, there's other verses that say you reap what you sow, give and it will be given to you. That doesn't mean you're always going to get money, cash in hand. It could be health. It could be favor with God and man. It could be a job. It could be other things, influence with people. It's not always money that we get in return in this life. Um, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Because in, in uh, Matthew 19, 28, when Jesus said, Assuredly, here it is again, I tell you the truth. In the regeneration, 
when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. So that word, there's a different meaning for this word regeneration. In Luke, Luke writes in Acts 3, 19 through 21, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets. Old Testament, very important, the Old Testament. Don't unhitch from the Old Testament. Which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So regeneration he uses in Matthew 19. Acts 3 here, Luke writes, times of refreshing, times of re the restoration of all things. So talk about an eternal perspective. He's getting them to look ahead. So there will be surprises, apparently, in the final assessment when Jesus returns. Um, it may be that those who were humble on earth will be great in heaven. And it may be that those who were great in this world may be humbled in the world to come. Not all. Um, but some. So for Christians here, a biblical attitude would be to think there's nothing too much to do. There's nothing too hard to suffer. There's nothing too dear to part with for him and for eternity. That should be our attitude. Last verse, back to Matthew 19. Verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now we usually believe the opposite, don't we? If you're first in line, you're first forever, you're good. No one can cut. If you're second in line, no one's going to cut in front of you. This is a different hierarchy now. Jesus is talking about uh, something different here, this concept. Many, it doesn't say all, so understand that right now. Jesus is not saying everybody who is first will be last. No, it says many. Many who are first will be last. What does this mean? Um, the statement seems to imply that everybody ends up the same. Well, we're all going to be in heaven, right? The last will be first. The first will be last when it comes to inheriting eternal life. Okay? When it comes to eternal things. The thief on the cross, for example, he didn't have time to get down and uh, go and read the Bible and learn the gospel and go and be a witness and study. And, and many who died quickly after they got saved or after they were converted, they didn't have time to do the things that many of us are able to do now, right? But they still enter the kingdom of heaven. The last will be first. The first will be last. We will all end up in the same place. Um, others didn't have time to study or be witnesses. Scripture, um, the application of that. Another thought might be that, and here's one, one that I struggle with sometimes, because I'm a late bloomer. I kind of started uh, late. And even though I was saved early, I was still li living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Um, maybe you can relate to that. Saying, I'm a Christian, but did I really love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And was I living for him Monday through Saturday? No. Not that I was sinning all the time, but I was one that thought I was a good person. I went to church on Sunday. I was a Christian. I went to a Bible study. So Matthew Henry said, um, regarding late bloomers, 
sometimes those are who are converted later in life outgain, so to speak, those who were converted earlier. Does that make sense? You may be one. You may, be, you may know someone like that. You may be one who is a late bloomer. You may know someone else who got saved 20 years after you, and they can make a defense for the faith and share the gospel, know more about Scripture than you do. Yikes. So Matthew Henry said this, that many who, being last, and pro- they promise little in religion, sometimes, by the blessing of God, arrive at greater attainments in knowledge, grace, and usefulness than others whose entrance was more early and who seemed more promising. Do you understand that? Interesting. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As long as we're alive, until we die, we are to keep growing, whether you're 7 or 70, Grow in the grace and knowledge. Why? So we can live it out and we can share that with others and give a reason for the hope that we have. The idea continues as Pastor Landon will get into next week because this parable, remember the Bible is written with no numbers. Paul didn't number his verses. Or, you know, in this case, Matthew. Um, So next comes, uh, next week, the parable of the laborers. So you can read ahead, it's the same principle. The first will be last, the last will be first. How much, did I, how much am I going to pay you? Guy comes to work at 7 a.m., he'll pay him one thing. Guy comes to work at 5 p.m., he'll pay him the same thing. Interesting concept. First will be last, last first. Pastor Landon will continue on that. So I just want to conclude with, let me just review a couple of the, the bullet points here before I conclude with one scripture. There's one principle we went through, um, seek and you will find. Seek and you will find. Those who search for him will find him if you search with your whole heart. Another principle was 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Also, to embrace and follow Christ, we must hold other things loosely. And verse 26, with men this is impossible, but... Don't you love the butts in the Bible? <laughs> but with God, all things are possible. So Ephesians 2, um, verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I just want to pause right there because everyone knows what a gift is, especially around Christmas time but it is a gift. And we can't repay it. Nor do we have to. We're not required to repay it. But there is an expectation on God's side that we will live according to what we believe and what the scriptures teach. And that's the sanctification process and the discipleship process. So back to the verses. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, Another translation says, work of art. We are his work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good things. We are created for good works, not saved by good works, created to do good things. Because if you're naturally saved and know what we're saved from, punishment, wrath, death, 
eternity in hell, if we know what we're saved from, we will naturally, authentically do good things for God and try to live according to his principles, right? So we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he knows in every one of our paths, he's got things prepared for us. Maybe people to love, maybe people to give a little bit of hope to when they're feeling hopeless and discouraged. Maybe someone needs to hear the truth of Christ and he's got someone that we need to minister to, our neighbor or something. If we don't do it, he'll, he'll find God, God will find someone else. But we need to be led by the Holy Spirit because it says God prepared in advance things for us to do. Has nothing to do with salvation has to do with discipleship and sanctification. And that's another point. So what good thing must you do? Believe and receive. Trust him and hang on to what this world gives us loosely and cultivate that eternal perspective. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we went through a lot today and um, I pray, Lord, that your word would uh, just sink deep into our hearts and our spirits and help us to understand what you want us to get from these teachings and help us to apply it, Lord, not just to know it, not just to have the head knowledge, help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. And also, Lord, help us to hold on to earthly things loosely and use them to bless others and seek first the kingdom of God and cultivate an eternal perspective, one day at a time, for as many days or weeks or months or years that you have us here. And help us to understand that, Lord. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. And thank you for Jesus giving us such an amazing example of responding individually and specifically to each person that approaches him in the Gospels, Lord. We praise you and love you. We thank you for the rest of this day, for the sunshine, for the warmer temperatures, and ask your blessings on each person here today and the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.